Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. We're back after a short breakaway. Welcome listeners to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast again. Co-hosting today is the wonderful Trevor Wood, author of the Jimmy Mullen series. Uh, the Hardback of One Way Street is out now in all good bookstores. Please do pick it up. Today's guest is Karen Sullivan. She runs the small independent publisher, Arenda Books. Arenda published literary fiction with a heavy emphasis on crime thrillers and roughly half the list is in translation. Um, they were founded by Karen in 2014 and the first book was published in 2015. If you haven't done so already, please do give a listen to the Matt Veselovsky episode, which came earlier in the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast series, as he's one of the authors with the Render books and a favourite of mine. The word Arenda is a Canadian First Nations word which loosely translates to the mystical power that drives human accomplishment, and its provenance is a part of Ontario, Canada, where Karen has spent every summer of her life. Why don't we start there then, Karen? Tell us a bit about Ontario and what that's all about for you and kind of well, why Ontario, you're there. well, Toronto is actually in Ontario. Okay. So Ontario is a province, and I I was born in Toronto and grew up there. And um, the cottage, our summer home, my parents' summer home is on a lake, the Kawarthas, which on Indian Point, which is kind of fitting, um, about two hours north of Toronto. And um, I would like to say that I have spent nearly every summer of my life, except for not the last two, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, But yeah, it seemed fitting to me to choose a name that had some um, personal resonance. Um, It had some meaning to me. Um, and that, when I thought of, when I was trying to think of a name for the company, after I discarded all the Ponzi Latin names that I came <laughs> up with first, <laughs> that one came to me and it just seemed perfect. Yeah. So tell us about you then. So I, th- I think, if, if I'm right, Trevor, my correct if I'm wrong, yeah, I think you are the first publisher we've actually had on the show. So kind of what's your background and how did you get to the point where you thought, oh, I'm going to start a, a publishing house here and, and get books out. Yeah, what madness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm honoured to be here. Um, okay, well, at the very beginning of my career, I worked in publishing. I came over to the UK when I was 20 after university, and my plan had been to travel around the world, and I didn't want to be one of those North Americans who says, oh, I've seen the Eiffel Tower, so I've seen France. So my idea was to work in every country for a while. And this was my first stop, (laughs) and I never left. So I worked in publishing for about three years, working my way up from secretary to the editorial director to commissioning editor. And then I left when I got pregnant with my eldest son and actually was moved to the other side of the fence. I wrote books for, I was an author myself, but nonfiction. I wrote books about uh, raising children, emotional health, um, discipline, diet, that kind of thing. Um, And then uh, because my... My three sons were getting a little bit older. I decided to take uh, what was ostensibly a one day a week job in an independent publisher, Arcadia Books. Um, And it turned out that it needed quite a lot more than one day a week because the guy who started it was had cancer and nothing had been done properly. And I knew enough from my early days in publishing that you shouldn't, for example, have seven ISBNs for the same book. 
um, and that you should probably have books at the printer if there's a publication date looming. So I did that for about a, year, a little over a year. Um, and I actually, I, I loved it. I, I loved being back in publishing and working with our books and authors and jackets and everything um, that it involves. But what happened is they brought in a bunch of shareholders who didn't have faith in the list. Um, and they really wanted to cancel contracts and start again. And I just didn't want to be there for that. I didn't feel comfortable with the whole idea. And so I I left and literally laid on my bed for 24 hours <laughs> and thought, well, why don't I do it myself? And I thought, I don't actually know what to do, but I know what not to do. Um, and Arenda Books was born. Can I, Karen, the most amazing thing for me is I, I didn't know that it was only 2014 until I was looking it up this morning. Yeah. So how, how did you go from there to winning the CWA Dagger for Crime Publisher of the Year in 2020, six years? It's crazy. Yeah, I think a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, like, because, I mean, we don't have any investment. This is all kind of our money cobbled together with loans and, and whatever. Um, so I... I, I this is my baby and I, I love every book I publish. I love every author I publish. And, you know, I am a workaholic anyhow. And, and it's just, we've just worked hard at building a community of Arenda sort of uh, fans. And the idea for the company was really to create, and I hate this word, but a brand that people would recognize and trust. And because we publish a lot of authors in translation, I wanted people to, to to sort of demystify it. And I wanted them to think that, to know, in fact, that an Arenda book was worth reading and that it was going to be unforgettable and special in some way. And that regardless of their usual genre or the fact that they haven't or have read translated fiction in the past, they would pick up the next book and, and know it was going to be good. Um, and it has, that strategy has to some extent worked um, in a difficult industry. <laughs> <laughs> But you've got quite a small team as well. Uh, this, yes. So <laughs> we have a tiny team. Do you use independent editors as well, or is it just... Um, no. So I, I edit, I do the structural edit on every book. Um, and so I work with closely with the author to get it in tip-top shape structurally. And then it goes to Wes Camel, who is our editor, um, and he does all the copy editing. And apart from his own books, we've, we've published one of his books, and we've got another one coming out this Christmas, um, when we get an outside editor <laughs> for that, he, he does them all. So that is important to me. Um, I mean, sometimes it seems overwhelming when everyone's delivering around the same time, but it's important to keep that integrity. Um, and I don't ever want to publish a book that I don't know inside and out, and I'm totally proud to publish. There's, okay. uh, there's loads to unpick there. And I'm thinking, where do I start? <laughs> like, I've got I've got so many questions. I'm thinking, where shall I start? I, I guess, um, I mean, you mentioned that you've done a few different kind of roles within publishing and that also that you write. And that's actually a little bit unusual because when we've had people that work in the industry and I've asked the question about, do you write? They, they kind of go, oh, no, I, you know, it's I would love to, but it's, it's just not something I do. But like, because I love books, I kind of do this. Um, do you feel that that gives you kind of a unique perspective, given that you've done multiple roles, you're now a head publisher, um, and you actually write books as well? Like, how does that help you do the role that you're you're in, or does it simply add to your work because you then well, are involved in everything? 
Well, no, I, I think it actually um, suits my control freakery to be involved in um, And I do work closely with the authors. Like, right at the, I mean, we do have an outside PR who does a sort of a couple of days a week for us or a couple, even, even less sometimes. I used to do all the PR myself, but that didn't work out. <laughs> um, and we also have someone that sells our rights, but we have a, everyone else is freelance. The, our biggest addition to the team was my son, Cole, um, who was at Liverpool University and asked for money. He was studying sports science. And I said, no, you have to earn it. So you can start doing these bits for our company. And he, he does all of our visuals now. He looks after all the digital marketing. He liaises with our um, Australian and and North American sales teams, he's become completely invaluable. So we are a little team, but in terms of being an author, um, well, I wrote nonfiction, Mm -hmm. so it's different. But what it did give me was some insight into being an author and how awful it feels, for example, turning up at events where you don't know a single person. And just, I, I, I personally found it really lonely. So I would go off and do a couple of days PR with, with some external, um, uh, PR company and and didn't know a soul and I, it was it was awful so one of the things I really wanted to do was to create a team a team mentality so when we go to a festival when any of my authors goes to a festival they know they're a part of something they know you know at least a couple of other people on the team and people will know them too and and that I think is the biggest thing that I came away with um, in terms of um, you know it has given me some sort of sensitivity to an author's feelings maybe <laughs> although I'm not always so sensitive if you ask them um uh like yuck in the in the side in the edit notes um but uh i think i think it, it helps really to to have an to have sat on the other side of of the fence um and understand you know the whole the whole picture really like authors need to know what's happening next they want to be involved they want to you know publishing and you you will know this I mean sometimes you just think like what next like it's been really silent for a long time is this normal and Mm. how is my book selling so trying to to make things clearer and easier was was also a name I love I love the team ethos of Arenda Tell us about the the bus tours, Karen. Yeah. I know you haven't been able to do that for quite some time now, but it was such a great idea. Oh, well, we have so much fun. So we call it the Arenda Roadshow. And in fact, we only missed one. We missed um, 2020. We did one in 2019, just before the pandemic hit. And in fact... I was the one going around handing everyone um, hand sanitizer because we knew something was going on. It was the end of February, beginning of March, 2019. Um, and I was the one who got it, of course. <laughs> but so what we did was 18, 15 to 18 of us went on the road. So we did five different events in five different cities in five consecutive nights. Um, and the author sat all en masse at the front of usually a hall or um, a theater at one point uh, in one place. Um, we, we did them via an independent bookshop so all over the country and we really tried to hit places where big authors don't tend to go and what I chaired this event and what the authors did was they they finessed their one minute um uh, elevator <laughs> so they had one minute to to say what their book was about um and then later on in random order they would read for one minute um and this this idea I mean what particularly because of my international authors, people are still kind of 
funny about reading translated literature and think think really that it's niche and and for really super educated people when that isn't the case at all. So to demystify it, I wanted to put these authors in front of people who, and they'd see instantly that they're just like us and normal and funny and and you know talented and and that's sort of what I wanted to do and I think also there is very little um, author loyalty at the moment because particularly I think because of a very flooded market and the fact that ebooks are so cheap so people load up their ebooks and probably don't read half of them so there's no you know there used to be a time where you'd say well 6,000 people bought the first book in a series. So therefore, six or eight are going to buy the second. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. But if you meet an author, you're much more likely to invest in them and and actually actively look out for their next book. Um, And so that was part of the strategy too. Plus, plus, you know, trying to, to, to sort of forge relationships with independent bookshops around the country and meet people who really can't get to events in London or say Edinburgh or Manchester which is where so many of the events are held and so yeah, so right. for people who um, you know read books and perhaps listen to this podcast but don't know the industry that well what what's kind of the the key differences between a, a, like a small independent publisher and some of those sort of maybe more well-known larger publishing houses and how they operate differently from your perspective money (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I mean okay the the biggest difference between an independent and a big company is that they publish more books they tend to have imprints which are all different sort of sorts of books published under a little umbrella uh, within within a country a company but they have massive sales teams and you know editors and PR departments and marketing departments um, and publish lots and lots of books a year Um, decisions are made in a very different way um, so the editors will present a, a book and um, give perspectives projected sales figures and marketing insights and decisions are made sort of on a board level mm-hmm. um, whereas in an independent publishing company um, it's very different so there aren't very many of us I mean sometimes I end up doing everything from editing an author's book to taking them on the road so there is no loss of enthusiasm, which often happens in a big company, because the commissioning editor might leave, for example, or by the time it gets to the sales team two years later, they've moved on to something else. And that initial excitement and enthusiasm for a book might be gone, whereas we don't do that here. <laughs> we're, we're invested personally, you know, all literally on all levels um, from beginning to end. But I can publish what I want to publish. And that is uh, the biggest thing. So I can take risks. We can be pretty nimble. I mean, I like we have a sales team and there is a structure within the retail industry, which means you have to present books at certain points if they're going to be considered for all of the retailers from independence mm-hmm. through to Amazon, through to Waterstones um, and other other chain retailers. Um, but I can, for example, probably squeeze something in if I think it's if it's going to work. I can, I can take a risk. I can, I can choose something that doesn't obviously look like it's going to work on paper, um, and and do it anyway. And and frankly, the whole industry is just a gamble, isn't it? I mean, when I decided to do this, I I showed my business plan to my my husband who has a financial background, and he said, "Well, this is the most 
flawed business model I've ever seen. He said, so you're telling me you're going to spend all this money, particularly translating a book, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to spend all this money producing this product just in case someone likes it, um, which no other industry does that, do they? Mm -hmm. And and I had to admit that that was exactly what we do. So I have two, um, I have two points, to, uh, and I, I'll, I'll raise one, and Trevor can kind of can come in with, with something. So you mentioned before about building that relationship and having that you know very hands-on approach with the authors so and obviously you mentioned that you can take risks and you do on books that maybe like you're passionate about the book regard not regardless of what the sales would be like but to you it's like a project of passion there but it must be difficult if you really believe in something but it isn't quite hitting the mark from a sales perspective particularly if you have to kind of not publish that author's next book having built a relationship with them on a personal level as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how difficult that can be or whether that's just something you don't experience. Well, okay, one of the things that we we that I wanted to do as well is give um, authors some sense of, um, I mean, we don't, we stick with them. I wanted them to be comfortable enough to write their best work without thinking they're going to be dropped if they don't get the right sales figures. I want them to feel reassured that that they have a contract for as long as they want to. So we've had authors for sure whose books have not met the, ex not, I wouldn't even say expectations because it, it's ridiculous to expect anything in this market. I would say hopes. Yeah. So, so yeah. So sometimes we've had authors who've been slow to get off the ground, but that doesn't mean that they don't eventually. And, you know, when I started, I, I was at a festival with Ian Rankin and he said, I love that you're doing that, that you're sticking with authors. He said, because I wasn't picked up, you know, I think it was book nine or with him. If you look around so many of the authors that we sort of automatically assume were, were instantly successful, weren't, you know, it was well down their career and it largely involves publishers showing faith in them you know and and that also in return engenders some loyalty in most cases so it's it's a healthy working relationship and I would honestly say that my authors are writing their best work ever right now and that is because they're not worried that about their sales figures I mean obviously they'd like to make some money um and we would too um but the other thing I think you mentioned was what if, you know, the market doesn't like it? Well, I also firmly believe that you need to create a market if you can't find okay. an existing one. So we publish a good northern author, uh, Louise Beach, and she has, we call her our genre fluid author because she has successfully <laughs> written in every genre there is, I think. Um, and that makes it super hard. Um you know, every time you're sort of presenting to retailers, they're like, where do we put this? This is like, sometimes they don't even fit a genre. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but we're like, well, just put it on the table, that will do. And and we we have stuck with her and she writes glorious books. I mean, they're wonderful and moving and incredibly character driven. And I'm super proud to publish her books, but I know not very many big companies would be prepared to let her do that, let her write exactly what she wants. Um, and even my sales team. So we're, our sales team is Simon and & Schuster. And when we moved to them from a small sales um, company, they they were saying, okay, so you need to give us your lead titles and your, you know, your your super lead, your lead titles. And, and I said, well, no, we don't do that. Um, you know, everyone gets the same advance. Everyone gets the same marketing spend. And they were really shocked. And it took them about two years to, to, to get it right. They, they, they kept 
saying, well, you have to choose four for us to put forward for Waterstones. And I just, I can't do it. I'm really sorry. I can't do it. Um, but that, but I think authors like that. I mean, they like feeling equal and they like that parody. They like the fact that, you know, they all have just as much of a chance. They have every bit of my energy and passion and money and everything else. Um, so we're all in with a chance, right? And we'll just keep on pressing. I think um, any aspiring authors listening to this will be queuing up uh, to have a chat <laughs> with you about this, Karen. I noticed, I mean, I know that you're you're one of the, I would say one of the bigger publishers that actually takes direct submissions from authors rather than just through agents. But I noticed at the moment it says your submissions are closed. Is that going to change soon? Yeah, hopefully at the end of the month. Every time we plan to reopen, we get we seem to have another deluge. Um, I mean, there, there, there are only three of us that, that read the manuscript. I mean, then we have to all read it if it's, some, if one of them, one of us reads something and we love it, then we all have to read it and sort of come to a consensus. But we have published a couple of books that only I loved. <laughs> um, <laughs> You've got to have some I, power, sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Full rank. Um, but generally speaking, so that can take a while. So we're super slow. And I think sometimes by the time we get to something, people have already found a publisher. Mm. Um, and that's just the way it is. Um, so yeah, the plan is for the end of September. We have had other stuff. I mean, sometimes agents have slipped things through and it's particularly our international agents. But because I do continue to publish my authors, the list is packed anyway. Um, it's generally, not all of my authors are one book a year authors. So it works out. But I mean, next year is a pretty bumper year because a lot of them have have books. I mean, with lockdown in particular, they were, they were all busy writing not just one, but sometimes two, um, which yeah. is a, a, a little alarming. And is the um, is the crime thriller sort of emphasis just be a reflection of what you like to read? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is definitely, and that's what the whole list is. I mean, I publish books that I personally would like to read, mm. so uh, that I feel absolutely personally affronted if someone doesn't like a book, mm. um, not just for the author's sake, but because I picked it. Mm. <laughs> well, I'd like to say just while I'm here now is that uh, Changeling by Matt Veselovsky is one of the best books I've yeah. ever read. So I think that is a fabulous, fabulous book. Yeah. And I see there's a really good example. So he writes, you know, true crime podcast, fictional true crime yeah. podcast to spell thrillers. And I actually met him at Bloody Scotland when he did the Pitch Perfect event and he was my choice. Um, and most of the people who were up there were not convinced about this format at all. But I just thought, well, how cool is that? And it has since been mimicked by a, a, a quite yeah. a few authors, actually. Yeah. Um, but he's so good at what he does. As the voices are so clear. And, mm. you know, who doesn't like, a, you know, a, a proper whodunit? And he veers slightly into supernatural mm. and and sort of mythology and, and I guess, um horror in, yes. in some parts but but it totally works um you know everyone that finishes a Matt Veselovsky book ends up googling stuff because is that real or not yeah yeah he's yeah love that guy I mean I have to say well, I did read it and think uh, as well, he is he is yeah he's a lovely guy I mean I, I read it and thought it was one of them where I thought I wish I'd thought of that you know <laughs> exactly. it's like wow what an idea <laughs> I wish I'd come up with it <laughs> And I, Adam probably won't have seen this because um, I know he's been busy lately, but I was touting for questions for Karen on Twitter. Um, and Dan Stubbings, who is like the secret eighth member of the Northern Crime Syndicate, yeah. um, <laughs> he's great. Our, 
he um, he came up with which book did you reject that you wish you hadn't, which I thought was a brilliant question. I saw that, and I've been thinking really hard, and I can't think that I have that I regret. <laughs> I've made no mistakes whatsoever. Well, I, I'm sure I have. I mean, but what I sometimes a rejection is not because I don't like the book, but so there is an author. I won't say his name because I don't want everyone to think I rejected him. But there's a Scottish author that's doing really well right now, but. And the reason why we rejected his book was because it is way too close to another author on my list. And so that's the, I mean, yes, we did reject him, but but for no bad reason. Um, and there have been authors I've rejected because I just don't think I would know what to do with, you know, I appreciated the writing and I loved the story and thought, wow, but then I know my own limitations. So I, I, I wouldn't know how to market, for example, science fiction or so my Scottish author, one of them different altogether, uh, Doug Johnston, for example, he's written a proper science fiction book and his agent is taking it somewhere else. Um, he's going to stay with us for his, you know, his scalp series. Um, um, and every anything else beyond reading, but reading this as we speak. Isn't he good? He's a, fan, got a lot he's of a physics in it, mind, Karen. Yeah, but I love that. I, I even said, you know, bump up the science because it's so different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is different, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you feel like you've learned something. I mean, I've gone straight. I literally read A Dark Matter and went straight into that because I thought I'm, I'm, I'm just keeping going now. This is great. He's, he's, a, he's a great writer. I, I love, and you know, his scales, you know, three generations of women um, running, you know, running a funeral home and PI investigation. <laughs> I mean, how, what a crazy idea, but it totally works. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of people now that call themselves scalpaholics. And oh, really? that's exactly what you want to see. Yeah, yeah it's great. So I, I will ask you at the end about the kinds of things you are or will be looking for um, in terms of submissions. But what I'm really curious about, because I haven't been able to ask this question of anybody on the podcast yet, is you know, you had the idea and you had you put a business plan together for you want to set up your own publishing company. If somebody's in that position and think that that's something I'd be interested in, I really like the idea of owning my own publishing company and you know being the whole journey, getting involved in that. What do you do? I mean, how how do you take it from being an idea to making it a reality? What are the kind of the key things one must think about at the beginning of that process? Well, I think, uh, I mean, as I said, I wasn't, that was the first business I'd ever run. Um, and there were lots of things I didn't know, but I did. And I think this is important call on other people for advice, lots of advice. Um, I asked someone to help me get our first um, sales and distribution deal um, because I, I'd sent a couple of emails and no one would answer me. Mm -hmm. um, but I got another independent um, publisher to help me with that. And the same thing went with our American deal. Um, and once I'm in the door, it's fine. I think as long as you're completely passionate um, about what you do and have, you know, your, you know, a clear understanding of your vision of, of your USP, um, why, you know, in this huge flooded industry, will your book stand out? What's different about them? Um, we did struggle with, with funding, absolutely, um, because the bank was not interested. I mean, we jumped through every single hoop and um, rather like my husband, they couldn't see how anyone would ever make any money being a publisher and they probably had a point <laughs> but we did uh, <laughs> but we we so we we like maxed out credit cards to pay print bills and took personal loans and like cobbled together our finances in the most appalling way so I would never 
suggest that route um, because I think it's 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 probably the way to early death. Um, but but I think we just I just knew it would work. And I you know we had times where I just thought it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And I thought no, we can do this. We can do this. Mm. Um, and we've had so many many successes um, along the way. And they're just enough to you know restore the faith. And, mm. and off we go again. So, to, to, so did, you, did you, um, like, it's a bit like an author, isn't it? Like a plotter and a pantser. I mean, did you go into it with the vision of this is kind of what I want out of life and from, like, you know, running a publishing company and then go with it? Or did you kind of, from day one, you did the research meticulously and advanced a plan every step of the way before you kind of jumped in? No, I've, I've definitely learned but through lots of mistakes. Um, and watching other people and but in a way my lack of experience I think has been a bit of a benefit because I I don't do things in sort of the traditional way I watch and see what seems to be working and then change it if it's not and and just try different stuff um you know and it 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 does work often some fresh eyes on things and I did always want to be working books I remember reading a book when I was about nine I can't remember what it was and it was about a, a woman in a New York um who'd moved to New York, a young woman, and she got a job reading The Slush Pal in a publishing company. And I'm like, that's work? You can, that's a real job? You can read, you know, and get paid for it? Because I was a fabulous reader. I was just saying that we were talking earlier before we started recording, there's a, a Twitter thread going on about how having lots of books in your house is, is basically showing off to your friends, um, which obviously I think is nonsense. Adam thinks there is a kind of point there, but I was wondering what you thought about that kind of uh, well, first of all, a lot of my books are in my bedroom where not very many people visit and jammed, <laughs> you know, jammed under tables and, and piles everywhere. So it's definitely, if anything, they're, they're dust, dust collectors or cheap insulation for my home mm-hmm. and not for show. But I, I don't know. I, I, we, I did a real clear out during lockdown um, uh, in some sort of mad frenzy. And I tried to get rid of some of my books. and, and But everyone that I picked up, I would go oh remember and it took so long to do nothing apart from actually end up dusting them which is one good thing um but no it's like pulling teeth to make decisions but every book is full of a, a memory when you bought it maybe or were given it and something you were doing when you read it and those characters whose lives you entered now hopeless hopeless yeah, yeah, me too. i mean i'm constantly thinking you know when i'm writing i'm thinking oh, I've read something where somebody did something with this and, you know, what did they do? And digging through shelves to try and find yeah. the book that I remember, you know. I need everything here. I need exactly. a huge book. Exactly. And, and, you, and I have pre-read read books too, you know, just because, I, you know, you think, oh, I just want that feeling again. Mm. Um, and I still have all of my children's books too, my, like, like adult young adult sort of children's books here too. So it's ridiculous. And I, I keep trying to sort of, push them on my three sons who are not interested unfortunately we are this time has absolutely flown i think we need to get you back on karen for another at least one more episode because there's so much to talk about but before i ask you the three quick fire questions that we ask everybody on the podcast just for anybody who is maybe thinking about submitting to arenda books what are you kind of looking for um in their upcoming kind of open submissions 
Well, I would say that we're, I'm quite a bold publisher, so I'm looking for something that's original. Um, the writing is incredibly important to me. That's why I always say literary fiction, because I, I want to be transported by the writing. Sense of place, again, a different kind of transportation. Um, characters that I'm going to remember. And I love books that sort of make me wiser, you know, by the time I finished reading them. So, so I think if, if your book fits that bill, then absolutely. Um, um, but I also, I think it's important to say that I publish people, not just books. Mm. Um, and because I'm so involved from beginning to end, I really want to know about you too. Tell me about you and how you think you'll fit into the team um, and how your book fits the list, you know, the whole package. Yeah, brilliant. So, and also if anybody is interested, you can find out more about Arenda Books at arendabooks.co.uk, but we'll put the address in the show notes as well. So, three questions we ask everybody, Karen, is first one, if your house was burning down and you could only save one book from the burning wreckage, which book would that be? <laughs> oh if anybody, okay. if anybody could see the screen here, Karen's got like 3,000 books behind her at the moment. <laughs> Um, I think I would pick, I have my grandmother's illustrated copy of Wuthering Heights. So, and, and it was, it was, it was from the 1800s. Like she's not, she's not that old, it was, but it was hers and she passed it on to me. So I think that, cause it's really special. Yeah. So if you were on death row, what would your last meal request be? Oh, probably pizza. Yeah. Good shout. Good shout. I thought you were going to say poutine there. I was going to have to protest about that <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally peanut butter smooth or crunchy crunchy i love peanut butter oh do you know they make peanut butter snickers now it's like little bites of heaven Ooh, I'll have to and try also that. about twelve thousand calories a bite i would imagine no because the little ones the little each one is 97 calories seriously <laughs> and you can buy them Oh, delicious. I promise this podcast isn't sponsored by Snickers. But uh, Karen, (laughs) it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Karen Sullivan from Arenda Books, thank you very much for coming on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast. Thank you. Here's Karen. Here we are on the after show segment of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, Ian Peacock, and co-host Trevor Wood. Trevor, what are your initial thoughts on that? We just had a, a quick catch up and chat there about how kind of positive an experience that sounds for authors who are involved with the render. What's your thoughts on it that? Does, it does sound awesome, I think. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm with Quirkus, and I'm incredibly happy with them. They've been brilliant for me. But if I was ever looking for somebody else, then a render would be high at the top of my list because I love all that team ethos. Um, mm. I love the idea that it's a small, flexible organisation. Yeah. Um, and they do so well. They do so well. I, I mean, we didn't get. I mean, we we'll have to get her back on. But what what I liked was kind of there was a lot of people with marketing experience and you know sales people who were saying, well, and like even her husband saying, this doesn't make any sense. You know, you will not make money out of this. Why would you have that kind of business model? And it was almost like it was a great example of kind of if you're sure and passionate about something and have a hope and a dream there, and you pursue it relentlessly, regardless of what people are saying around you you can and will make a success of it. And I think that's yeah, really, and I, really. I kind of wanted to kind of link that in because you're obviously writing a bit of nonfiction. It was like self-improvement, something Karen writes about. So we'll have to ask her a bit about that generally, but it, it's certainly a real example of a success story could from she, somebody having a passion. She could easily be the first callback for us for the podcast, I think, because there's so many more things to talk about. I yeah, think. maybe we'll have to call and this part one and get her, get her back on next <laughs> week. 
You can tell it's kind of such an individual list because there's so many writers who are doing things that other people aren't, like Will Carver's on the list, and, and we spoke about Matt. Mm. Uh, Wace Khan is on the list. It, it's, it's a really eclectic um, company, I think. So you mentioned Quirkus before, uh, your publisher. What's happening in the world of Trevor Wood other than writing really dark, dark stuff to do with Jimmy <laughs> and Doug? Um. Oh, it's not that dark, Adam. Um, well, the paperback of uh, One Way Street is out soon, November, I think. Um, and then book three, Dead End Street, is actually uh, has been brought forward a bit, so that's out in January um, next year, which actually suddenly seems quite close. What's yeah. that, three and a half, four months? Um, and they're unusually because my books have had this weird soft launch before where they've been out on ebook and audio books yeah. first. Whereas, whereas this time they're combining the hardback with the ebook and audio. So it's all coming out in one go in January, which will be a novel experience for me. I'm looking forward to that. And how are you feeling about it? Because I remember when you said, like, you know, they wanted a sequel and you signed the deal to do a sequel and then a third. It was a bit, you only ever wrote the first one to be, you didn't, you didn't write it with that in mind, basically. And, you know, how many crimes can a homeless person win? You didn't want it to kind of become a bit daft in that regard. So how have you felt about the series now that it's it's written as that trilogy? Well, I, I found a way to make it a trilogy, I think. Um, and, you know, some people have suggested it should be more, but I, I think a trilogy is right. I think the story is complete after that. Uh, and if I tried any more, it would start to stretch the bounds of credulity, I think. Um, having said that, you know, if... if books four and five, whatever they may be, are complete disasters, then, then you know, who knows? I might, I might return one day. Mm. I mean, I have to say, because I'm, I'm reading One Way Street at the minute, I think that uh, it in no way feels kind of like convoluted or like, a, like you've shoehorned some kind of story in just to write a sequel. It's completely plausible and very different from what we witnessed in, that, in the first book. So I think it's a great success in that regard, absolutely. Thank you. Lovely to hear. Yeah. Anything else then? You, you're always travelling around, drinking whiskey, going to pubs, putting photos online. So what's <laughs> what's happening in you? And, and I was going to say the personal, well, the social and personal life of Trevor Wood. Well, we didn't really, I, Karen and I have talked about this at some length in the past, but I've got huge Canadian connections as well. I've spent yeah. a lot of time out there in the last um, 20 years. And my daughter is currently uh, out in Vancouver and she's doing a PhD and she's going to be out there for about five years now. She's already been there for two um, but it's been almost impossible to get out there, but they've just opened their doors um, to people who've been double vaccinated. So we're currently trying to get out there later later in the month, I think, um, for a few weeks. Uh, but it's so difficult. There's so many hoops you have to jump through. Um, so we're trying to jump through them. But yeah, I'm hopefully heading to Canada later. But, you know, I've still got a book four to write, which I'm about halfway through now. Yeah. And of course, you've, um, you've got Bloody Scotland coming up as well, haven't you? You're off there there. Get, are you involved there at all, or is it? A, are you a punter? Uh, I'm supposed to be doing a panel with Sarah Hillary and uh, Imran Mahmood, yeah, on the Saturday morning. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you for coming on, Trevor, and co-hosting on today's episode of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast. I'm sure we'll speak soon. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've been wanting to talk to Karen on this for a while, and it's taken a while to get her, but, but it was great. Thank you.